episode 383, Direct Contracting as a Health System Business Strategy. Today, I am speaking with Nick Stefanizzi. American healthcare entrepreneurs and executives you want to know, talking. Relentlessly seeking value. The show on direct contracting with Doug Hetherington, episode 367, and also the one with Katie Talento, that's episode 350. Both of these experts have said that if an employer direct contracts with a provider organization, in general, the employer gets about 20% savings over the status quo. This makes sense. Just cut out the middleman with an MLR of plus or minus about 15% and you're three quarters of the way there. You might be thinking, well, maybe not so fast here because then wouldn't FFS fee-for-service rates go up? I mean, is it not slide one on most carriers' sales decks? How great they are at leveraging their vast buying power to negotiate discounts with hospitals? Huh, if you think this, you're about to be shook. Turns out carriers are not so good at negotiating rates with hospitals. For more on this topic, follow Leon Wisniewski on LinkedIn or check out the show notes for a link to an article entitled Hospital Prices Vary Widely, Often Higher with Insurance Than Cash, The New York Times Finds. The big concerns for employers looking at direct contracts, I think, are going to be threefold. And right now I'm just speaking in general. This has nothing to do with the conversation that follows. But I think the three big concerns are this. Number one, let's say the employer gets actual fee-for-service rates that are 20% less than average carrier negotiated rates. So great, but will then utilization go up if the wolf is watching the hen house, so to speak? especially if PCPs are owned by the hospital system and incented, as many are, to drive downstream utilization. I mean, it's been estimated that PCPs can drive a million plus dollars of revenue when they refer in-network to profitable service lines. What happens when this is unfettered, meaning no third party to do prior auth stuff for utilization management, for example? Some employers for sure could and certainly do hire a third party to do utilization management, but sometimes one of the contractual requirements of a health system direct contract is an easing of, let's just say, at least the most aggressive PA prior auth requirements. So now all of a sudden are more plan members getting more services that even at a 20% discount add up to a greater total spend? A counterpoint. I've heard more than one person who would know say that most PA prior auth programs don't actually do a whole lot except defer spend at best. Here's a quote from Scott Haas. He said, the only value I have observed of the prior authorization process is the accumulation of data that is required of the stop loss industry to establish known risk for them to laser risk. Cost shifting at its best. Other than that, I have rarely observed value to the patient provider or the plan sponsor. One thing I'm noticing is that those providers offering direct contracts are aware of this whole line of questioning and fear of the health system driving over utilization because incentives and might be doing things, the health system, look at a direct contract to mitigate those fears. Some are discussed later in this podcast. So I don't know about whether plan sponsor spend would net-net go up if you get rid of PAs and profit-driven utilization management or go up enough to offset all of the admin costs and care gaps that crappy prior auths or prior auth processes slam patients and providers with. Here's the second big concern for employers besides even if the price goes down, will utilization go up? And then what's the net effect of that? Here's the second one. 
will the provider's PPO network be too narrow if I go with a direct contract with a health system, either, you know, legally running afoul of network adequacy rules or run afoul of employees just getting pissed off because their doctors are no longer in network? I guess there's a bunch of ways you can do things if you are a plan sponsor that might mitigate this, but I could still see it certainly being a concern. So that's number two. Number three, by aligning the plan sponsor with the provider, including getting all the data and just from a pop health perspective, being able to align around priorities, does care quality, preventative care stuff, social determinants of health and equity concerns, does this stuff actually start to improve patient health? There are plenty of examples, some that Nick Stefanisi talks about in this podcast, including a great one with Whole Foods, where this is certainly the case. But as we in healthcare all know, not all cases are the same. As soon as any party in the mix starts trying to maximize their revenue with little regard to its impact on patients and clinicians, things can go south. For example, just speaking in general here, but I might bring up the whole, remember consolidating health systems? They promised all kinds of care quality improvements as a result of owning the entire patient journey and consolidating data. And yeah, not so much with that. As we know, hospital systems who consolidated have no greater or better quality on the whole as unconsolidated health systems, despite the fact that their prices went up a lot. Now, I just have to say, this is not a parallel situation. When the health system consolidated, it was just providers consolidating, which may have actually exacerbated relationships with plan sponsors and payers as opposed to driving greater alignment. So as I said, not a parallel situation. I think the point that I'm making is just because better patient care is theoretically possible doesn't necessarily mean it will happen when there are profits at stake. However, when incentives do align and true collaborations can occur amongst payers and providers or amongst any of the other stakeholders along the patient journey, yeah, some great stuff can happen. As I mentioned earlier, I am talking with Nick Stefanisi, who is CEO over at Northwell Direct, which is Northwell's standalone for-profit entity looking to direct contracts with employers and their TPAs. The board of Northwell, meaning the tax-exempt hospital system Mothership, that same board also oversees Northwell Direct. Northwell Direct has two main categories of product offerings. One is that they offer on-site and virtual clinics for employers. The other is that they offer a network to direct contract with. According to Nick Stefanisi, a health system can offer significant price reductions because, and this mirrors a lot, as I mentioned earlier, what Doug Hetherington and Katie Talento said in earlier episodes, you can get rid of a ton of administrative burden that payers place on hospital systems plus you get rid of the middleman carrier profit margins, plus the health system can drive additional volume, I'm assuming, to profitable service lines with profitable commercial patients, patients who are profitable despite the 20% cut, because yes, commercial rates are still way higher than Medicare, even if you cut 20% off the top. It's also, as Nick talks about in this episode, more possible to do value-based things and care for populations because there's plan sponsor slash provider alignment and far better data capture. My name is Stacey Richter. This podcast is sponsored by Aventria Health Group. Nick Stefanisi, welcome to Relentless Health Value. Thanks, Stacey. Appreciate you having me. If we get into the two, I'm going to say major service categories that Northwell Direct offers, the first one is setting up on-site and virtual clinics for employers. What does that look like? Yes, we have services that we can deploy either in in the office, physically on site or virtually. And then the second service category you offer is direct contracting. So employers and or their TPAs have the option to, in air quotes, cut out the middleman, so to speak, and contract directly with the network that you have built out. 
there's no carrier in the middle of this, i.e. there's no BCBS, United, Cigna, Aetna. This is a deal directly between you, Northwell, and the plan sponsor or, or TPA. What we've done is construct a high-performing selective network that's pretty big. It started with the foundation of Northwell Health, but we recognize that in order to effectively today service employers that are in the New York metro area, we had to put press into places that the call it traditional borders of the health system didn't reach, right? So what we've done is gone out and we've negotiated with provider organizations to participate in this network. The TPAs then administer that benefit, but they do not sit between us contractually. You said that by doing that, the employer realizes typically around a 20% savings. And is part of that, I mean, we all know what the MLR, the medical loss ratio is for payers. It's like 15%. So I guess, you know, if you eliminate that sort of third party in the middle there, then you could say that you also eliminate their profit margin, which could be 15%. Is that part of where the 20% savings is coming from? And what are the other parts? I think there's a couple of things that this allows us to do and how we're able to position ourselves as we have from a price point perspective and from a market perspective. It cuts out a lot of administrative and other infrastructure that traditionally has sat in between the patient and provider. And what you also get, what you also see is we all know in the healthcare space, the bad behavior that we see from the, the traditional payers. There are payers from whom, you know, 20% of claims are just denied out of hand for care that's already been delivered. Think about the massive infrastructure that's required within health systems around the country to deal with that, just to fight for payment for services that have already been delivered. With these direct contracting relationships, we're able to significantly reduce that burden and that requirement, and that also supports the discounted rate structure. But from my view, the rate structure that we've negotiated, and it's important to, to note that we have to go out and we have to negotiate these rates with any participating provider organization. But to me, that discount is just the starting point because what we also do is complement the network structure with a really robust care management infrastructure and care management programs that more proactively engage members and really more proactively manage clinical conditions. It's really a, a multifaceted approach where, yes, you have a discounted rate structure, but we're also offering the tools and resources that can more effectively manage the health and well being of the population. And that should add incremental value for these employers. So let me break down what you said actually into four components. And I'm going to go through these not necessarily in order. So the original question was, where's that 20% coming from? <laughs> you know, obviously, the formula for value is outcomes divided by cost. So there's two components to value. And I'm focusing first here on the cost part of that equation, because obviously, the lower the cost, the higher, if you have equivalent quality or outcomes, the higher the value equation. But the first thing that you said was by eliminating the payer, what you're doing is you're cutting out the whole denying care that's already been delivered, which you said could account for almost 20% of claims. So I'm assuming that there's a significant administrative burden on Northwell's side. There's two bits to that. If the payer is denying 20% of the claims, and I'm just talking about an employer who's entirely cost-focused, if I deny 20% of the claims, then I just save 20% of the claims. So you're saying that maybe the admin portion of this, because one thing we can't forget is that prior authorizations, the whole department, business unit... <laughs> 
at a payer organization, that's a profit center. Like they're charging an employer to administer prior authorizations. There's obviously multiple reasons why a payer is going to prior auth something. And one of them is because they're charging the employer to do so, right? So effectively what you're saying is that the whole sort of administrative mess (laughs) around prior authing and then denying claims and then everybody trying to administer getting the money for that claims like net net if you don't do that then the advantages the money that can be saved by not paying for the prior auth services if you will and then paying the hospital i guess additional fees to try to go collect the money so they have to increase their rates charged etc if you just get rid of that whole mess you wind up with savings overall. I think it's a component of it. I think that it supports the decision that allows provider organizations to negotiate rates that bring a savings opportunity of something on average up to 20%. I think that's absolutely a part of the equation. And then the other side of it for provider organizations is, look, it is a selective network, right? So it's not necessarily, it's broad, but it's not as broad as one of the traditional carriers. And the other incentive in being able to reduce cost is that there'll also be migration in of net new volume. And that'll help on the provider side to subsidize the discounts. So there's a couple of different levers and components here, Stacey, that make this possible to provide the discount. The factors which account for how you're able to reduce prices 20% is you reduce admin, you've added net new volume, and you've been able to, as you said earlier, cut out traditional infrastructure. You also said that it recenters back on the provider and the patient relationship. First of all, I would ask you how that happens, like how getting rid of the payer in the middle. You still have the employer in Northwell, right, as, as entities that are involved in this, but how just specifically getting rid of the payer helps a provider and a patient, you know, improve their relationship or improve their ability to have a relationship. That's part A of this question. But then secondly, how does that reduce costs? I think it comes down to a couple things. Number one, Recentering the relationship between the patient and the provider without the intermediary traditional carriers who, in my view, have a different set of motivations. And I'm not a clinician, let's be clear about that. But it recenters how a patient's care journey is managed on what is in the best clinical interests of the patient and allows providers to render that judgment and be paid for the care that they think is most appropriate. We create transparency about utilization and practice patterns, and certainly those are things we care about as it relates to providers that participate in our network. It removes barriers that traditionally have gotten in the way of that patient and that provider interaction. What it also allows us to do is collaborate directly with an employer from a clinical perspective on what their employees need, what will be most impactful for that population and what is important organizationally and culturally. As an example, one of the clients that we work really closely with is Whole Foods. We've had a relationship with them for the last two years and they adopted the Northwell Direct Network for their team member benefits as a side-by-side alternative here in the New York metro area for January 1st of this year. One of the things that we had our clinical team do was work really closely with their clinical leadership to say, what would a primary care model look like for a Whole Foods team member? And to customize a visit type and an experience 
and a clinical focus on things that are important to Whole Foods as a business and that are meaningful to those patients, those members. And as an example, when when a Whole Foods team member visits a Northwell Direct primary care participating practice, their experience is different. It's a longer visit type. There's a heavy emphasis on things like food and nutrition. We wrap their primary care experience with health coaching and navigation services. What it does is allow us to to sit with our clinicians and their team members, look at data, define the experience together and create programs and create structures that that support that patient provider relationship. So those are the things I think about when I talk about that, Stacey. We can remove barriers to care and you can do that in a financially viable way because only physicians that meet a certain threshold of using best practice care models are in network to begin with. Because if you remove the barrier, and I'm talking about this is the traditional payer speech right now. They're like, we got to keep these providers under control, right? If you didn't have (laughs) us, then they'd be going nuts. There'd be back surgeries, like everybody would be getting back surgeries. And is there some grain of truth there? I don't know, maybe. So the way that you are curtailing the just rampant use of every expensive service line that the hospital is financially motivated to deliver is by ensuring that the network is limited to providers and provider organizations who have demonstrated a commitment to a practice pattern, which is aligned with best practice care. So that's the first thing that I'm understanding here. Yes. And that's why I use the word selective when I described it, in addition to the comment I made earlier about it not being narrow. But selective is the right intentional, I think, descriptor of this. And what we do is establish with our participating provider partners in the network is establish things like joint clinical advisory committees, joint operating committees that allow us on an ongoing basis to share information and make sure, Stacey, that we're delivering on exactly what you just described. And then from a primary care perspective, you had said that what you're doing is you're customizing a visit type with an emphasis on a longer visit to enable more cognitive services, because we all know one of the things that PCPs really need time to do is to cognate on who is this patient, what matters to them, what do they need. That's the primary service delivered by a PCP is cognitive. So having that longer visit type would facilitate that. And then also the heavy emphasis, as you said, on nutrition and a healthy lifestyle. The different visit type I thought was fascinating because I think one of the things, and we can get to this in a moment, that is really difficult to operationalize within a larger health system that has all different payers. I mean, it's not like any given doctor is only seeing Northwell direct patients, right? So one of the things that's sort of tough is to try to figure out how to operationalize who is in Northwell Direct and who is a typical payer that still is going to have one of those 7 to 15 minute PCP visits. But if you create a different visit type, that's a pretty clever way, I'm understanding, to operationalize like who's who. Yeah, it's an all of the above approach as it relates to this to make sure that we operationalize it the right way. On the one hand, you've got the ID cards and we make sure that they're easily identifiable as participants in the Northwell Direct Network. Secondary to that, there's, yes, creating a structured formal visit type that can be set up and accessed in the registration and scheduling systems that really support it and that connect into then how the physician, how the providers are managing 
their day. But the other thing I, I just don't want to lose sight of in all of this is communication and change management and engagement, really thinking about how do we engage the providers? How do we support them? And how do we not only do that with the providers, Stacy, but how do we think about the office staff and making sure that they similarly are engaged and have the right information and know what's coming down the pike? What are the best practices that we can consistently use to make sure that everybody has the information that's needed to play their part to the best of their ability in the process? So I think, Stacy, just to tie it back, I really think it's an all of the above kind of approach to make sure that these things get operationalized and adopted appropriately. Just reiterating where we are in our conversation. First, we were talking about kind of the financial modeling, and it sounds like there was a lot of financial modeling that was done to add and subtract and tote up the difference relative to how much can be saved from both a Northwell and an employer standpoint. If you, for example, reduce administrative burden, you create a much more efficient care pathway. So all of these kind of considerations add up to the financial model. But then if we're moving into, okay, great, let's operationalize this now, which is obviously equally important. There's some Sun Tzu art of war quote, and I forget what it is right now, but it's basically something like without being able to operationalize something, it's the noise before defeat or something like that, (laughs) right? Like it's crazy important not to just have a vision that fails. And you immediately brought up, you have to be able to engage providers so they know what the deal is here. And that is something which there was an interview with Ashley Gunter, who is a change management specialist. And that is something that she could not have said more times (laughs) in the conversation relative to the work that she does with provider organizations. She's like providers, physicians, nurses have to know what's going on. But then she said exactly the same thing. The front desk has to be able to recognize what that insurance card means. Because if that it's just a fail right out of the gate if the front desk person either rejects the card, and there's examples of that. I don't know. We don't take that plan. And or they don't code the right visit type. So it's the front desk as well as that billing on the back end. If the right visit type doesn't wind up getting coded, then the employer winds up getting charged for an extended visit using some payer code, which is a fee for service at some level. And then everybody's pissed and the patient gets some giant copay. Two things about that. I also view it as not just, I guess it's bi-directional is what I would say. Providers also want to be a part of this. They also have ideas and that we can also leverage those ideas because they want to participate and they want to contribute and be involved in changing this. And so we view it as bi-directional flow in addition to just making sure they have what they need to be able to deliver for these patients, these employees. And then, you know, the other thing, and I think it's part of what's different here about our network and how we approach the network. Part of this is the provider organization DNA and knowing how to work with and engage these stakeholders most effectively. There's value there in in how this comes to life for employees whose employers have adopted this solution. Where does the TPA fit in this whole mix? Are they doing anything operationally or is it mostly that they help set the thing up and then they step out of the way? Let me say a couple things. One is we've talked most about the network because That's really what we focused on as we thought about launching this product into the market. We really stepped back and said, 
as a provider organization, what are we really good at? We're really good at building networks of providers and we're really good at managing care. We didn't set out to create an insurance company. And so we didn't stand up our own claims shop and administrative support organization. What we did is say, let's find the right partners who bring best in class solutions for those capabilities and partner up with them to bring this product to life and provide all of the capabilities that are needed to provide an employer with a full replacement option. And so what we've done is create some preferred relationships with a small number of TPAs where we have really tight integration. While we each have our own contractual relationship with the employer for the specific services that we are providing as part of this solution, we coordinate their implementation and operationalizing them. And so account management is a joint approach that's offered between the network and the TPA. Customer service, we're involved in making sure that the members are being treated in a way that is consistent with what we're trying to deliver from an experience perspective in this. So there's a very close coordination and alignment between the network side of the offering and the TPA side. It just from a sort of philosophical structural perspective made the most sense to think about how do we line up these best in class capabilities and create a joint offering to these employers. Yes. And Northwell years ago did try to stand up an insurance plan and I interviewed Chris Smith, that was episode 127 about this in 2017. Yeah, no, we definitely heeded the lessons of that experience. I think by most objective measures, that business was successful. If you look at the membership, if you look at the growth, if you look at the satisfaction of the people that actually carried that product, where we struggled was some of the provisions of the Affordable Care Act and risk adjustment. It certainly sounds like what you're doing is provisioning the care, whereas it's the TPA that's figuring out all the other bits, like how are they adjudicating claims, giving the employees cards. How do we administer the HSA? All of the other components, yes, that are needed to operationalize how a member uses uh, the network. You had mentioned that you work with a, a small group of preferred TPAs. Is there certain things that are must-haves that you look for? We want TPA partners who have a reputation that is backed up by performance. We have a handful of TPA partners that we've curated over the last two years. We do very deep due diligence on them, looking at all sorts of operational metrics, everything from claim turnaround times to speed to answer and abandonment rates in the customer service center, really making sure that their operations are best in class they're scalable and going to be able to deliver on the promise that we make to these employers because we take the obligation very seriously when you're talking about something as personal as somebody's benefits the obligation that comes with that is very serious secondary we've looked at who's got unique digital capabilities that allow that put the experience where everybody lives today in their phone and online so we've looked for partners that have some unique and differentiated digital tools and resources that augment the traditional customer service call center that is offered to team members. And then the third thing that I would say is, you know, if those two things are table stakes, they've got to be able to perform and they've got to be able to offer tools and resources for members to engage. They've got to be philosophically aligned and they've got to be able to collaborate to create the points of integration 
between our two organizations, because what we don't want is a disjointed experience for the employers that we are servicing. We don't want them going out and saying one thing and us saying another. We have to be totally aligned and they have to be committed to a partnership-oriented approach. Those are a couple of things that we've looked at. We've got some TPA partners that are small and local, some that are regional, and others that are national in their client base. And um, it's been really great as we've gotten started and gotten out into the market. Summing up what you said there, there's three things that you're looking for in a TPA partner. One is their ability to perform, and you gave some examples of that. And then secondly, their unique engagement capabilities slash digital capabilities. It's really important if you're trying to create a seamless experience for patient to be able to reach said patient. And then the philosophical alignment. So those are the three characteristics. You know, one question I have just given there's obviously so much talk about transparency in the market, given the CAA and the payer requirement for payers to post their prices. One of the things that's coming out as part of this is just how many backroom deals are being requested, you know, like brokers who want a certain percentage of every script or brokers who are getting rewarded for maintaining the business for an employer. TPAs are making money in various ways. It's becoming clear how common the expectation is that stuff like that happens in the traditional pipes that sit behind healthcare financing. Do you run into that? I would say a couple things about that. Certainly it's clear there are a range of different incentives that exist in the traditional system that in my view don't always favor the best interest of the employer or the team member. And we're trying to take a different approach. We structure our relationships. There's a network access fee and there's a care management fee associated with accessing the Northwell Direct Network and the care management services that we've built with our provider partners. We don't, on the Northwell Direct side, we do not pay commissions. We do not have financial incentives. That's just not our model. We work very closely with brokers and consultants. We feel it's important not to have them feel like they've been somehow cut out or disintermediated from the process. But my hope and our approach is that the value add for them is bringing something new and differentiated and value additive to their clients. And that'll be incentive enough. Now, maybe I'm being incredibly naive, Stacey. It's not, it wouldn't be the first time I've been accused of that, but that's been our sort of philosophy and approach within Northwell Direct. But I can't disagree with your point. Certainly, as we've gotten into this space, it's clear that there are a lot of different incentives that are out there in the traditional models. Is there anything I neglected to ask you that you want to mention? The only thing we didn't talk about are some of the other unique solutions. And it's more on the at work side of our business, Stacey, but we're seeing a lot of interest in things like behavioral health solutions and navigation and access services and actually customized primary care models, even outside of a network replacement option. I think what's different about our approach is it's not just a continued proliferation of point solutions. It's an integrated model. Our at work solutions have been built with an approach that really allows us to get at whole person care and is really differentiated. We have an opportunity to create a real national alternative to the traditional insurance carriers, a real provider-based alternative. And that could be transformative when you think about the fact that 155 million people access insurance through an employer-sponsored plan. 
we have an opportunity to take a more holistic and more integrated approach. And that can similarly be value additive, not just for the health and well-being of those employees, but also help with other business objectives, like showing the investment in your team members and helping to support recruitment, retention, and differentiation as an employer brand. That's probably the one thing we didn't talk about, but I really am excited about the work that we're doing with employers. And I really believe we have an opportunity to do something transformative. So speaking of that work, if someone is interested in learning more about what you're doing at Northwell Direct, where would you direct them? I would direct them to find us on social media. You can also Google us, Northwell Direct. That'll take you directly to our website and you can hit the contact us form and we would be happy to get in touch with you and have a conversation about how we might be able to help your organization and support your team members in their health and well-being journey. Nick Stefanisi, thank you so much for being on Relentless Health Value today. Thank you, Stacey. Really appreciate it. Thank you so much. Hey, could I ask you to do me a favor? If you are part of the relentless tribe working hard to transform healthcare in this country, I don't need to tell you that we need as many on our side as we can get. The most vital thing that you could do to help expand the reach of this show is to leave a rating or a review on iTunes or Spotify and or share this show with colleagues or decision makers. Personally, I cannot appreciate it more when I see the reviews and they really count towards our search rankings. Thanks so much for listening.